Lord, we thank you once again for your word. We are privileged, Lord, that you would give us a record of these events. And Lord, help us now uh, as we study them, that you would teach us, that you would shape us, that you would mold us, Lord, to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, and that through our time in the word this morning, uh, Lord, you would have your way. Allow me to be your, your messenger, your mouthpiece, and Lord, would you be glorified in all that is said and done, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, in Exodus, we find that God reveals himself primarily in two ways, by what he says and also by what he does. God reveals himself by his words. We hear God speaking to Moses, and we hear God speaking through Moses to his people. And so Moses ends up taking up this, this role of a prophet. And so God's words are communicated to his people. And as he speaks, God makes himself known. But God also reveals himself by his actions. He breaks into the history in order to lead his people out of slavery. That's ultimately what is happening in the story of Exodus. His plagues over, uh, over Egypt are designed to show that he alone is God. And he displays his power. He shows himself to be God by that display. So we know about God because he has spoken and because he has acted in human history. And this is also true of Jesus. He is the word. He is the, the speech of God. And we pay attention to what he says. That's what the Father said. This is my son. Listen to him. But we also listen or watch or pay attention to his actions and his ultimate action in going to a cross and being that sacrifice once for all. Now, as we begin our study of Exodus, it's important to remember that a healthy approach to God's word is guided by some very basic tools or principles of interpretation. And let me list for you three principles that will just help us think through how we approach the book of Exodus. First of all, we must approach it biblically. And what I mean by that is simply this, that we need to study the book of Exodus itself. We must study it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, not just bouncing around here and there trying to say what we want it to say. We need to let it speak as it is being revealed to us, the very word of God. And so we're seeking to understand the plain meaning of the text. And so we must see here that this Old Testament narrative, at least the first uh, section is Old Testament narrative, and he intermingled then with, with God revealing his law and giving instructions about the tabernacle. But we, we need to see this as an unfolding story, and the emphasis then in the text in a story is the plot line. So these stories have these times of, of crisis and dilemma, and God then provides himself and, and, and provides that solution, and these plot lines are going to be helpful for us. And in studying it biblically, we must also seek to reference other places in Scripture that will help us understand and interpret the text. I mean, Psalm 105 that we began with this morning is one of those places. It helps us understand how God's people viewed the Exodus through song. So we study God, Exodus as God's breathed-out word that is telling a story which is supported and interpreted by its own context and the testimony of Scripture. So we must study it biblically. Secondly, we approach it historically. And this is true of other passages of Scripture, but in particular, the book of Exodus. It's not legend. It's not some kind of fable. Um, this is something that we study as historical fact. We take the accounts that are listed here to be actual history of events that took place in the lives of the Hebrew people in Egypt and in the wilderness. Now, some scholars have attempted to identify some potential issues, and there are certainly questions, and we have to resolve questions of history. That's not a problem. 
As long as we can find a plausible solution to some of those questions, we, we should welcome people asking questions because we can be confident that there are solutions. In fact, many times when people have accused Christians of believing something that the Word of God says from a historical note, um, over time, God has proved himself once again to be accurate and right, and so we don't fear that. We, we just have to think through what is plausible, what is real. So Exodus is a history, and we will approach it as such. Third, we must approach it theologically. In other words, God has revealed the book of Exodus so that we can see him as the hero. Um, there's not much about the people of God in the book of Exodus that we should mimic, unless we want to be grumblers and complainers and like that. Okay? But the hero here is God, and so we want to see that. But we also want to see theologically how the book of Exodus is also preparing us for the one who will be our Savior. And see how the book of Exodus actually gives a picture and an understanding of our own walk with God and our own pursuit of being like Christ, our own sinfulness and our own need for a deliverer. And as we begin our study here in chapter 1, we immediately feel the tension that the children of Israel are experiencing. It's a tension of living life in a foreign land. And friends, this is, this is the tension that we experience. Let me give you some examples, maybe to, to move us in a direction of understanding a little bit about how this is unfolding in this text. These don't compare to what's happening to the, the children of Israel, but certainly they, they give a sense in which we, ex, we recognize the tension. Imagine that you and your spouse are inviting some friends over for a meal, and you have uh, picked up the Safeway flyer, and you notice that ribeye steaks are at $3.99 a pound. You're like, man, that is a good price. And you begin to think to yourself, honey, we can get some ribeye steaks. And our, our friends are going to be happy. And so you make your way down to Safeway. And when you get to Safeway, the parking lot is full. I mean, it's so full, you're driving around trying to find a spot, hoping that someone's going to pop out and everyone's beating you to it. And you end up parking on the street somewhere. You finally make your way into Safeway, and you go to the meat department. You're looking all over the place for these ribeye steaks. You can't find them. And so then you end up going uh, to the butcher, and, and there's like a whole bunch of people standing in line, so you have to grab a number. There's like eight people in front of you. You're like, okay, I'll stand. Maybe he'll be able to help me out. Maybe he knows where these ribeye steaks are. And as you're waiting there, you can hear some of the interaction going on with the people that are in front of you. And the person at the counter says, Okay, I'd like some those ribeye steaks that are on sale. And the guy's like, oh, man, good thing you're here because we're almost out of them. And you're like, oh, man, what's going to happen now? And as things get closer, people are ordering ribeye steaks, and you're just seeing them go and go. And you're just really wondering whether or not you're going to be able to get them. You're going to have to come up with another plan. So you're kind of sorting it all through, and you have one person in front of you. And as they go to the counter, you're saying, don't say ribeye, don't say ribeye, don't say ribeye. And to your joy, they say, I'd like some salmon, please. And you're like, oh, this is great. So the guy goes back, he pulls some salmon out, he wraps it up, and he gives it to them. He says, can I do anything else for you? They're like, oh, yeah, and I'd also like some ribeye steaks. <laughs> and then that guy's done, and you come to the counter, and you're, you're kind of sheepish, and you're wondering what's going on, and you're hoping that there's something there, and you say, I, I, do you have any more of those ribeye steaks? And the butcher kind of smiles at you and says, you know what? I just gave out my last ribeye steaks before the guy asked for salmon. And when I went back to the freezer or wherever the cooler where they have it, I picked up the salmon and underneath the salmon was a stack of ribeye steaks that I didn't even know was there. So yes, I have some ribeye steaks for you. And so he gives you the ribeye steaks and you finally rejoicingly get through the, you know, the, the, the aisle checkout, you get in your car, and you go home, and you're sitting down having cooked your ribeyes, putting on the table, and your hosts are like, man, this ribeye steak is so good. And you're thinking, you don't even know what I had to go through and the tension that I was under to experience this joy. What I'm trying to show you here is there's joy, there's blessing, and then there's also this struggle that's going on. 
right? Here's another one to kind of paint the picture. Someone has given you some tickets to the A's game. And it's a special A's game because the A's are playing the Dodgers. And you haven't been to an A's game in the longest time. And so you say, okay, I'm going to go, and I'm going to enjoy myself. This is going to be fun. And I get on BART, and I finally get to the stadium and taking it all in, and I get settled. I got my, you know, my hot dogs, got my Coke, I got my nachos, I got my peanuts, all right? And you think, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be a fun time. And you start biting into that hot dog, and it's the first inning, and there's a guy behind you that says, let's go, Oakland, boom, 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 boom. Let's go, Oakland, boom, 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 boom. And you realize he is the guy who leads the cheers in the stadium. So, first inning, you're like, oh, you know, and it's really a tense game, and this is important, and you know, people are hitting base hits, and there's some home runs, and by the end of the third inning, Oakland is up three to two, and it's starting to get a little bit cold, and you're like, oh, that's right, I haven't been here in a long time. I know it gets cold here, but I'll manage, I'll endure, and then the game gets more exciting as both teams are making base hits, and Double plays, and now it's the sixth inning, and the Dodgers are up six to four, and the wind begins to blow harder, and you can feel wetness in the air, and you begin to shiver, and the guy behind you is yelling, Let's go, Oakland! Boom, 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 boom. Let's go, Oakland! Boom, 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 boom. And then it's the ninth inning, and the game is tied, and Oakland has two on base with two outs, and the batter gets up to the plate and hits the ball low into right field, and their runners are off, and the ball is picked up and in the outfield, and it's thrown to home plate, and the runner makes it to home plate, and Oakland wins. Everyone's yelling and celebrating, and the guy behind you is like, let's go, Oakland! Boom, 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 boom. And the rain starts to come down. And it's not just a drizzle. It starts to pour. And you are soaking. And the guy behind you is still yelling. And you can't get out of the place. And by the time you get to BART, you're just drenched. Just like everyone else, you're getting on BART, and it smells like wet dog. And you're, <laughs> you're on your way back to Castro Valley. And you get off and you drive home and you get home and your wife says, so how was the game? It was exciting. But I am miserable. <laughs> Friends, there's a sense in which that is the tension that is happening here in these 14 verses. This tension of, of living life in a foreign land. We can experience good things, but those good things are interwoven with difficult things. And what this passage is screaming to us is that there is this tension. And this tension, friends, is fleshed out in a couple of ways. There's bitterness and there's blessing. Or we can say there's blessing and then there's bitterness. Now, friends, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a child of God, if you have been welcomed into the family of God by the blood of the cross, you have become a sojourner, a pilgrim, a refugee living in a foreign land. So we shouldn't be surprised when our society, which is governed and influenced by those who do not know God, looks at us with intolerance and would rather be rid of us. And it should come as no surprise that even those who are religious in this world, even those who identify themselves as Christians, will turn against Bible-believing Christians, consider them as narrow-minded, as totally out of touch with reality, and who, because of their belief in the Word of God, are morally deficient. Last Saturday, I believe it was, in the New York Times, there was an op-ed article entitled, Why Do People Believe in Hell? Written by David Bentley Hart, who is a uh, professor of theology at Notre Dame University. The subhead of the article is, the idea of eternal damnation, is it biblically, philosophically, or morally justified? And this article was a condensation of his recent book, 
that all shall be saved, heaven, hell, and universal salvation. So you can get an idea of what he actually believes. He's a universalist. The idea that everyone will eventually be embraced by God, but his writings are not a casual discussion, but an attack on the heart of Orthodox Christianity. In his book, this is what he writes, I am not very tolerant of what is sometimes called biblicism, that is, the... uh, the understanding of scriptural inspiration, which sees the Bible as the record of words directly uttered by the lips of God through an otherwise dispensable human intermediary, and which entails the belief that the testimony of the Bible on doctrinal and theological matters must be wholly internally consistent. He goes on to say, I certainly have not patience whatsoever for the 20th century biblical fundamentalism and its manifest imbeciles. By that statement, he's talking about you. He's not talking about Westboro Baptist Church. He's talking about just your, your, your normal Bible-believing Christians are these horrible fundamentalists, right? They're imbeciles. He also describes those who hold the traditional understanding of hell as lacking a properly functioning moral intelligence. And throughout his writings, Hart uses the following expressions to describe biblical Christians. They are viciously vindictive, exquisitely malicious, ostentatiously absurd, degrading, nonsensical, ridiculous, abominable, and genuinely odious. Nice to meet you. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that there are people who hate God's word and reject God's standards and measure of everything about Christianity based on their philosophical, uh, philosophically framed opinion of who God is. But did you notice what the real issue is here? The real issue isn't David Bentley Hart and the fact that he wrote this article. The real issue is that it was published in the New York Times. If I wrote an article about the centrality of the word of God to living out the Christian life, let me tell you what, New York Times would not touch it at all. See, what's happening here is we have this thoroughly liberal and secular newspaper that loves anyone who will attack faithful Orthodox Christians. So I share this account simply to remind you that Bible-believing Christians are now being presented as ignorant, incoherent, irrational, and ultimately immoral in their teaching. This is what this is what they love. This is what the secular world loves, is when someone under the same umbrella, so to speak, speaks about their own people in this way. Oh, I'm, we're going to put them. They're going to be in the editorial. Sure, we're going to put them there. There are people who have nothing to offer, talking about us, in the public dialogue, and their immoral teaching and beliefs are dangerous to society and should not be tolerated. That is the context, friends, that we're finding is taking place in the country in which we live. Now, our text here unfolds into two sections. Verses 1 through 7, we find the blessing of God. Verses 8 through 14, we'll see that although the people of God are blessed, life turns bitter. And friends, that's the tension we experience when we live our lives in a foreign land. On the one hand, we enjoy the blessing of God, his faithfulness to us, and so many of the benefits that come to us because of the gospel. But on the other hand, we experience the bitterness of life, sickness, suffering, struggle, and in particular, oppression because of our identity with Christ. So let's jump in now to the text, and let's see this this tension unpacked. Let's begin now with the blessing of God. And the blessing of God is marked by strength and exponential growth. And in this section, we're going to find Moses seeking to make three connections for his readers. Let's look at verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I lean on others who are. But one of the things that I found in my study is that the English translations actually don't translate a Hebrew word that is in the text. It's actually the first word in the text. And it's the Hebrew word vav, which means and. So as we we come to this history of of Exodus, which is what we're going to do, it's connected to history, I want you to notice 
First of all, there is this word, vav, which the English translations have chosen not to include. And so it's, it's a window then into what Moses is doing here. He's saying as, as Genesis finishes, he's beginning Exodus and he's connecting Exodus with Genesis with the word and. It's a small thing, but it's a reminder that there is actually a story going on. And what's also interesting is if you go to Leviticus and Numbers, you have the same thing going on there. That's not in Deuteronomy. But there is this unfolding story that is connected here with this little word, and. So it's important for us to see then that this is a history that is unfolding. Let me put it this way. Exodus without Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy wouldn't make sense. All the books of Moses are telling the same story, just at different stages of the story. So that's the first thing under the connection to history. Secondly, the beginning and the end of uh, the book of Exodus give us a little insight too. Exodus begins with a reference to the past and ends with a reference to the future. It looks back by reminding us of Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. It looks forward by telling us how God led the people in the wilderness after the building of the tabernacle. So again, you have this this book that's connected to the other books, but it also looks back and it looks forward. So again, further, it's connecting itself to this history. And then the book title is what? I know it's a hard question. Exodus. Now, what does Exodus mean? Well, the word Exodus means to come out of. It's the story of how Israel got out of Egypt. But if you're going to have an exodus, you also need to have an isodus. In other words, you have to ask yourself the question, how did you get into Egypt, before you can ask the question, how do you get out of Egypt? Right? That's that word, ice, in, in the Greek means isogis, and the word exodus comes from the, the Septuagint translation here. And the word ex means to come out, Right? So how did the Israelites get into Egypt? How did they become slaves so that they needed to be delivered by God through the Exodus? That's what these verses are seeking to tell us. So it's important then to realize that Exodus is connected to history. Secondly, it's important to realize that in these verses that Exodus is connected to family. In particular, we have this short genealogy taking place here. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, in order to understand the significance of, what, of this, we need to remind ourselves of the audience that Moses is writing this book for. He's writing these first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, for the second generation that grew up in the wilderness wandering. And he's writing so that they would remember their roots. They would remember their God. Genesis 12, 40 through 41, helps us with that understanding. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, On that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So you have this this massive time where you say, well, what happened? How how did things happen? How did they get to where they are today? So when Moses is beginning Exodus, he's taking this wilderness generation back to the origin of their nation and the beginning of their people, and he's saying, these are your forefathers, this is where you came from, and this is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And of course, it was Joseph who was first in Egypt. And again, if you have been around the Word of God for a while, this is a very, very well-known story, but it's a story of God's providence. I mean, the sons of Israel did not like their brother, Joseph. He had a special gift, could interpret dreams. He gave a dream one day, and they didn't like it, or at least the interpretation of that dream and they ended up selling him into slavery. And Joseph ends up in Egypt in the home of Potiphar. Potiphar was, he was high ranking in the army. 
And Joseph was faithful in his dealings in the household. He became the household steward, which is, is like the, the one who you trust for everything that's going on in the household. And while Potiphar was away, Potiphar's wife took an interest in Joseph. She pursued him. He constantly avoided that. One day he couldn't avoid it enough, meaning that he, in the process of running away from her seduction, she grabbed a garment of his and then turned around and claimed that he tried to rape her. As a result, Potiphar's upset. Joseph goes into prison. Wow, this is awful. What a horrible story. Injustice. A man is innocent, a man of integrity, a man who's diligent. And yet, God has him in prison for a purpose. And God uses his dreams to be the means by which he would get him out of prison. And ultimately, Pharaoh at that time had a, had a dream. No one could interpret it for him. And they heard about Joseph, and Joseph was called. He interpreted the dream. Seven years of, of, of plenty, seven years of famine. And so Joseph was taken out of jail, given the responsibility to steward Egypt to make sure that the crops were brought in and stored so that during that seven years of famine, they would have resource. And that's why ultimately Jacob and his brothers were coming to Egypt because Joseph was gone at that time, but they were hungry and they needed food. And so God had already placed Joseph there. Joseph was the third highest ranking person in Egypt of that time. So we see this connection now to family. Joseph is there, his brothers and his father then come, and when they come, this is what Pharaoh says to them. This is Genesis chapter 47, verse 5 and following. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you, are, if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. This was sure, come on in. We're glad that you're here. We appreciate all that you have done for us. Let your people settle. And there ends up being 70 of them in total. That's how it all began. Israel had come under good conditions and as a welcomed and favored people. But since that time, they had grown in number. So initially, through God's provision, we have Joseph in Egypt, the brothers and fathers come, brothers and father come, and the number of descendants are 70. And as the new generation would hear this account and the listing off of the names, they would recognize them as their tribes and they would connect themselves to the birth of their nation. So for them, this was incredibly powerful. You know what's really popular today, of course, is Ancestry.com or things like that, right? I know some of you probably in here have done the, have done the, the, the DNA test, and you figured out that you're from some lost tribe in the New Hebrides, and uh, I don't know, whatever it might be, right? And you're, The goal is to get connected to your roots. Now, I actually think it's kind of cool to find out where you're from. I mean, I'm just thinking about myself. I mean, I've got British roots. And my mother, her roots are from Sweden, although she was in the Dakotas, and she met my father in India. They're both born and raised in India. And so we have all this kind of strange stuff happening, and it's like, I'm not exactly sure where I'm from, except I think there's an English base there. And it'll be fun to kind of figure, you know, who my, my family ultimately is, who my people are, and connecting to the past. That's all that has its place. And this, of course, was really important to the children of Israel, because they saw that they were descendants of Abraham. That was vitally important to them. But for Christians, we have a little different take, and, and this is fleshed out in the New Testament. We're, we're less concerned about our physical heritage, and we're more concerned about our spiritual heritage. And when we look at our spiritual ancestry, Paul tells the Roman believers in particular that the Gentile believers not to think of themselves less uh, because they are not Jews, but because of their faith that Abraham is their father. Romans 4.17 says that he is the father of many nations, not just one. And when we consider our heritage is a spiritual heritage, we look back through the years since Christ came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins, and we identify with the struggles of all who have identified themselves with Christ and his gospel. And we are truly privileged to have their examples. So just think about the early church recorded in the book of Acts. 
You might even go to Hebrews 11 and you see the the hall of faith, it's called. Just people in the history of of God's people who demonstrated faith. You can pull out various histories. We studied as men, History 101, a very simple walk through the history of the church. Men and women who stood to defend the faith or those who, who died for the faith. They wouldn't recant what they believed to be true. Then there are those who gave themselves to give us the word of God in our own language and to spread it abroad. Those who challenged the distortions and errors of the church when it wandered away from the gospel and became a legalistic and ritualistic religion. Truly, we stand on the shoulders of giants, friends, and it's good to be reminded of God's faithfulness to his children through the years. It's always good to know where you come from, the God who created you and established you, and what he's called you to do for his glory. And Moses is seeking to to anchor that in this second generation. So we see then this connection to history, this connection to family, but there's also a connection. And this is a really important connection. It's a connection to blessing. Did you catch what verse 7 says? It just explodes, doesn't it? But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. If you're a Star Trek fan, there's Furbies all over Israel. Fribbles, there you go. Thank you for the correction. We know who the Star Trek fan is. They're like cockroaches, like bunny rabbits all over there in Egypt, right? The point is they're just they're they're full of them. This is this is a verse that is just packed with saying this is what's happened since that origin to this time right now. Multiplication, growth, strength. So we've seen God God moving in this text from his providence and bringing the sons of Israel to Egypt, his exaltation of Joseph in particular, but now God's blessing, the exponential growth of the children of Israel. Like I said, Moses packed into verse 7, about every possible way of saying that the Israelites rapidly increased in number. Literally, the Hebrew reads this way. As for the Israelites, they grew, they were fruitful, they swarmed, they increased, they got powerful, and more and more, and the land was filled with them. And what is said in verse 7 is rooted in what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's just look at a few of those passages. First of all, what did God say to Abraham? Genesis 12 and verses 2 through 3. There's a lot that God said to Abraham, but I'm just pulling this one out as one example. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless, bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed promise. Now, if you're Abraham and you're seeing your family, you're like, this ain't happening too well. And then this promise also goes then to Isaac. Sojourn in the land and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Again, you look at Isaac's family, you're like... Ah, boy, I just can't see it happening. And then you move to Jacob. Jacob, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your, to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he's just repeating the same promise that he gave to Abraham, but specifically now to Jacob. And again, you look at Jacob's family, and you're like, I just don't know how you're going to do this. <laughs> All right? And then we get into the book of Exodus. You see what's happening here. I mean, this is, this is incredible. Verse 7 just shows you just this incredible exponential growth. 
Now, some of you are, play a lot of video games. There's a video game I, I used to play a while back called Sim City. Some of you people my age might remember this. But you kind of build a city, and over time you get a you know you, you get a you get a town or village, a town, and it turns into a city, and you have to be a mayor and make sure everyone's figured out. But there's a goal that you always want to get to in SimCity, is you want to get to the burgeoning level. It was through SimCity that I learned a new word, burgeoning. It's just it means exponential growth. What's happening in verse seven is is now, boom, this massive, incredible growth, all because of God's promise and God being faithful to his promise through the years while Israel is in Egypt. And friends, everything in these first few verses is screaming at us the blessing of God. God promises and God delivers. He took a man from Ur of the Chaldees by the name of Abraham and promised to bless him, and God ultimately continues then to bless. He remains faithful in spite of all these strange difficulties that they go through. God is a God of blessing. When he promises something, he will make it happen. You can count on it. How has he blessed us? Let me give you a few ways. He's blessed us with his word, teaching us, guiding us, growing us. He's blessed us with his gospel, that through Jesus our sins are forgiven, that because of the gospel, he's at work maturing us to be like his son. He's blessed us with the promises of his presence in the person of of the Holy Spirit. He blesses us with the church. He blesses us by giving us the, the privilege to be image bearers so that we can reflect God to mankind so that he will be known. He blesses us by giving us an inheritance in heaven. He blesses us by promising that he will return one day for his bride. That's just a a few of the blessings that he gives us. To say that we are a blessed people is not to say that we are financially prosperous. That's not the point. That actually is quite irrelevant. It is to say that we are living out our purposes for the glory of God. That is a blessed person. As the psalmist reminds us, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. That's what we're called to do. So there's this this blessing of God that is marked by strength and exponential growth. Now there's this bitterness of life that comes in at verse 8. This is the tension now that's developing. In in the backdrop of all this blessing, there's also bitterness. It's marked by slavery and excruciating pain. Let's read verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I'm calling this an ignorant dynasty because this This king, this pharaoh here, is coming in, and he's establishing a new regime, possibly a new dynasty, and with that new regime comes a new political approach, an ideological shift of sorts. Now, it's likely that Joseph rose to power during the time of the Hyksos pharaohs, who were actually outsiders. They invaded and conquered Egypt, and Ultimately, they were um, expelled from Egypt, and a new pharaoh rises up. So it's quite understandable that these new pharaohs did not like outsiders. So there's a spirit of, of, of hatred toward those who were foreigners. And so it's also understandable if there was someone who rose up in previous regimes who was well-known but wasn't truly Egyptian that you wouldn't even remember who they are. So if we put this in context, the Israelites were foreigners in a country who hated foreigners. So we read that the king did not know Joseph. We need to understand that it is is also possibly a refusal to honor any prior arrangements protecting the status of the Israelites. The Israelites who were once welcome are welcome no more. It's an ignorant dynasty. It was an ignorant dynasty that now had a shrewd policy. Look at verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, 
the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. We see in this verse that Pharaoh seeks to manipulate his people, his people likely probably what we would consider his cabinet, manipulating them into believing that the people of Israel pose a threat to them as a nation of Egyptians. They are too many, too mighty, and ultimately they will be our enemies. They'll fight against us. And friends, this is the tactic of politicians. They play on people's fears. The fear of losing their job, the the fear of losing their wealth or their land or their political control to foreigners. We can't let that happen. Now, friends, it's not improper for countries to have regulations relating to immigration, to have numerical restrictions on the influx of foreigners, as well as restriction on foreign investments within their borders. Those countries have have invested in their own people, in their own land, and they want to make sure that things are carried out well and that there are controls in place. Uh, Most countries, most nations have that in place. What the new king did here was to sound the alarm. It was a shrewd or calculated move to get approval from the masses for his planned campaign of oppression based on the claim that the Egyptians were to be run over by the hordes of Israelites now living in among them. He portrayed to his own people as the minority to be potentially dominated by this foreign majority. And it was a clever way to garner support. Friends, all oppressive regimes use the threat of some great danger, some real danger or some imagined danger to justify violation of human rights. This pharaoh was simply using the oppressive leader's handbook. The issue that comes through this text is that Israel was too many and too mighty and would be our enemies. And action was needed to be sure that they didn't continue to multiply and continue ultimately to overtake us. This sort of propaganda, friends, has worked countless times in history. (laughs) If a regime wishes to be given freedom to oppress a given group within a nation, it defines that group as an undermining force, a real danger, and potentially the agent of overthrow to the established order. So in this case, the new king, this new pharaoh, was spouting ethnic hate and propaganda of the sort still widely employed in the modern world to justify ethnic persecution and eventually genocide. And like most propaganda, it was a distortion of the truth, but wasn't completely false. Certainly Israel was growing, and Israel had multiplied. And certainly we have to think through what that looks like. The Israelites then were foreigners, and they were living as guests, but welcome guests in the land. There's a little kind of note here in the, in the, in the, the Hebrew here, where, where we translate it, they were, would escape from the land. That kind of doesn't fit the flow, that they would be these people who were too many and too mighty, and they would rise up with our enemies, and they would escape the land. It's actually a Hebrew idiom that means that they will overthrow us, okay? So there was, there was this, this campaign now, a shrewd campaign that established this new policy And now we see this new policy actually unfolding in the rest of this text. Verse 11, Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens to build for Pharaoh's store cities at Pithom and Ramses. Let's just think through what is happening here with this new oppression, with this new policy toward the Jews. First of all, there was a reordered society. They would no longer be an independent people welcome to live in the land. They would become a slave caste under the control of slave masters. And their main purpose in life, which was once primarily the keeper of cattle and the people who worked on the land, they would now have as their focus being slave labor assigned to them by the Egyptians in particular to build these two cities. All right? Secondly... 
there was this restricted population. In other words, by virtue of this edict, this would then provide for Pharaoh a restriction on the growth of the Israelites. In other words, it was Pharaoh's kind of careful political way to actually say something other than let's just kill off some of the Israelites with hard labor. He's saying, well, let's, let's take them and let's have them build these cities. These cities didn't exist. They were built by the hard labor of the Hebrews. And these two cities were strategic. They were in a particular location near the border and were there for military purposes. So the implication is that the building of these cities under heavy taskmasters would mean that families were separated for long periods of time, which would in theory, impact the conception and growth of the Israelite people. And through the hard labor, some people would be malnourished and they would ultimately die and so the people would not multiply. But in the providence of God, Pharaoh's plan does not work. He's been successful in reorganizing the people. He's been successful in forcing them into slave labor. But the goal of reducing their numbers has not been accomplished. What does it say? Moses recounts, verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. In other words, the initial oppression plan of hard labor and separation failed. So the Egyptians oppressed more and more, but still the people of Israel multiplied and spread. And friends, this defies a common sense understanding, doesn't it? I mean, how, how is this taking place? Well, we know because we understand God's providence is at work. And we shouldn't be surprised of that. God was turning the Egyptians' oppression policy against them. And that might right give us a, a confidence, but, but be careful here as we think about, oh, isn't God's, isn't God's providence wonderful? It wasn't wonderful for Israel. They were under taskmasters. They were slaves. And yet God was blessing. And friends, we just need to be reminded this, this whole concept of health, wealth, and prosperity, that God always wants you to be happy and all this kind of stuff, is not the record of Scripture. God works His will even through oppression, and sometimes in far greater way through oppression. It's a lie that many people believe, and so they are dumbfounded when things don't go their way or they suffer or they're hurt or they don't have the finances or they're under some kind of cruel oppression. Where is God? Why has he forgotten about you? He hasn't forgotten about you. But God even works through those times of bitterness. And you can hardly imagine the Israelites saying, we don't mind this extreme suffering because after all, we're growing numerically. <laughs> Oh, suffering's real. And God allows his people at times to suffer, and it's a real suffering. One of the things that helps us then to think through what God wants from us is to see that there's a bigger picture going on, that God is at work doing something. This moves then from a reordered society, a restricted population, to what I'm calling a ruthless oppression. Now, they just start turning the screws in. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Here's the contrast in this text. You see it. The Israelites were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, grew extremely strong. They were like cockroaches on the earth. They multiplied, they spread abroad. Then we read, they made their lives bitter, hard service, mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field. They were ruthless in making them work as slaves. And then verse 13 is repeated at the end of verse 14 to drive home the excruciating pain of their bitter suffering. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is tension, friends. Blessing of God, bitterness of life. In our sinfulness, in our normalness, <laughs> we really want the blessing of God. And we think that the bitterness of life 
means that God has abandoned us. But God has not abandoned his people. Friends, here we have this uncomfortable marriage intention. Blessing of God, the bitterness of life. Did you notice verse 12? And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. <laughs> I mean, they are panicked. The more they oppressed the Israelites, the more they kept multiplying. Why? Because God's blessing is invincible. Or to put it differently, God's promises are invincible. The blessing of God and his promises to his people are invincible. Let that sink in a moment. When Christians living in a society begin to notice that they're slowly being marginalized or pushed aside or considered irrelevant or ignorant or immoral, when they begin to see subtle and not so subtle forms of persecution and oppression, when they look on the horizon and it seems likely that persecution and oppression will only increase in ways that will not be comfortable or convenient for them, when the darkness in society seems to be growing darker still and the greater persecution and oppression begins to come, they can be sure that God will keep his promises to them. Friends, hear this. We look around at our country right now, and there's so much that's happening that is, I might say, anti-God, anti-Christian, moving in a direction that's away from the ethics of, of Christian culture. And part of us might think to ourselves, oh, this is horrible, this is terrible, and we'd be right in saying that, but don't allow yourself to be so overwhelmed with it that you can't function. The light shines brighter in the darkness. But understand, if your light is shining, then you are likely going to be under greater persecution in the darkness. So it means we have to stand tall. And it's going to be a test of our faithfulness. It's going to be a test of the reality of who we are. And some people are going to get sucked in, and some people are going to be discouraged and deceived, and some people are going to, going to fall and fail, but then we're going to need to help bring them back to where they need to be. This is all going to be part of what it's going to look like. God's promises are invincible, but God's promises don't guarantee our earthly comfort. They don't guarantee our earthly comfort, but they do guarantee our eternal comfort. And God promises, I say, and God's promises also guarantee his ultimate glory, that in whatever way he chooses, he is at work through us to bring him glory. And by bringing him glory, to make himself known. Now, this, this can be, a, we can think about this as, as a church. We can think about this as individuals through the, the individual things that we are going through, suffering, trial, difficulty, persecution. God is at work seeking to bring glory to himself and by bringing glory to himself to make himself known. That might be through your sickness. That might be through your trial. That might be through the oppression that you have at work. And God is saying, hang in there. You know my promises are invincible. I will be glorified. I will be known. You can count on it. You can be sure of it. The blessing of God and the bitterness of life, they do go hand in hand. And as Christians, we face the tension of this living life in a foreign land. We, we face that tension in two ways, primarily physically and spiritually. Let's just think through that a little. First of all, the physical tension. We're citizens, friends, of another kingdom living in a foreign land. We find our physical heritage and roots in a variety of countries and from a variety of ethnic groups. I mean, Gateway Bible Church is an excellent example of that. It's a reflection of our Bay Area country, uh, culture. In our church, we have people from Mexico, Honduras, Philippines, Tanzania, Ukraine, China, Korea, Vietnam, Russia, Romania, Indian, Scotland, Ireland, England, I probably missed a few. And then there are those of us who have ancestors from somewhere in Africa, somewhere in Europe, somewhere in Asia, and somewhere in South America. We're not exactly sure where they're from at all. But we're all here. We're all gathered together. We're under this one roof. We're part of the church. And we can be proud of our heritage and enjoy our different foods and customs and celebrations, but we must always keep in mind that those identifications and distinctions are not primary. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven living in a foreign land. 
And we live by a new set of values. And we have a new kingdom uh, of God worldview that is the lens by which we evaluate the world around us. And friends, when we live as citizens of that kingdom in a foreign land, there will always be tension. Tension to fit into the world around us. Tension to lift our ethnic and cultural heritage above our kingdom citizenship. Tension to give up that new identity for earthly values. Tension when the society we live in no longer tolerates us. And they justify their intolerance with convincing arguments, and we suffer as a result. Friends, we must remember that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I know it's an old song, but, but it's a song that just reminds us some basic truths. Our citizenship is not here. Now, we must be faithful as citizens of our country, Go, do your duty, vote, participate in, in um, jury duty, do all the things that are right and good as a citizen of the United States of America. But just remember that you are a citizen of a far greater kingdom than one that has only been around for a few hundred years. And then there's the spiritual tension. Not only is there this physical tension, but the spiritual tension. We, we have... Come to God through Jesus Christ by faith in his shed blood on the cross. We've been delivered, embraced by God, and welcomed into his family. And although we enjoy the blessing of our conversion, we still remain in a world that is tainted by sin. And sin is around us. It pulls at us. It chases us. It seeks to bring us down. It draws us away. And we wrestle to take our flesh and our thoughts captive. Our progressive sanctification is not just a calm journey through Central Park of God's grace. It is a lifelong and difficult pilgrimage through valleys, mountains, moors, meadows, raging rivers, and dangerous quicksand. And along that journey, temptation, doubt, and deception are nipping at our heels trying to stop our progress to the celestial city. Someone should write a story about that. This is what it's like for us. Friends, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're to keep our eyes on the prize. And we're to seek to live our lives for his glory no matter what. This is the tension. And this is our tension. And it's okay. Now, I want to draw our attention to two concluding thoughts. One that I just feel has to be mentioned. The other one that needs to be mentioned. First one has to be mentioned. And it flows out of our text. What is your attitude toward the foreigner? This is front and central in our political climate today, isn't it? This thing about immigration. And we can be on polar sides on this issue. We must be careful that our hearts are not swayed by sinful attitudes that rise up when this topic is discussed. Instead, we must seek to be biblical first and then, uh, or rather than allowing political beliefs to be a framework or the lens that we interpret Scripture with. And in doing that, it is important that we are careful not to say more than the text is saying or be guilty of saying less than the text is saying. So the issues that we're facing are not identical to the tension that Israel was facing under Pharaoh, but here's a couple of things for us to think through. Number one, the Israelites were living in Egypt legally. So be careful that you're not using Israel as slaves in Egypt to be the basis of a contemporary argument about whether or not illegals or immigrants should come into our country. Israel was welcomed into Egypt given the lands by the Pharaoh and established themselves in there, okay? They had the right to be there, but this new Pharaoh is reneging on that promise. So I think where we can go in this text is we can say this. We don't want to follow Pharaoh or his example and how he was going after these Israelites. This is a heart issue. We most certainly don't want to embrace the shrewd policy 
of Pharaoh and start to repeat his kind of rhetoric. We don't want to see a foreigner and think in our minds, they are different. They're not like us. They don't sound like us or, or look like us. They're probably dangerous. I mean, look at what they're wearing. You want to stay away from them. You certainly don't want them in your neighborhood. They won't cut their grass. They won't take care of their property. You'd be surprised if they even take out their trash. They will drive down the value of our home and bring with them riffraff. You better look out because there are so many of them, they might even take over. We could say it in all sorts of different ways, couldn't we? But we don't want the kind of heart attitude that we see coming from Pharaoh. In fact, we could, we could if we wanted to, develop a, a theology of welcoming those who are pilgrims, those who are sojourners, those who are foreigners. But that would also include expectations for them, ways in which we're exercising hospitality, but ways in which that hospitality should be respected. We certainly don't want to get behind a candidate who would say that these things should be the agenda. See, our Christianity needs to dictate how we think on these issues. And so easily we're caught up in the political argument rather than thinking through how we interact with people that are not just like us. Now, I'm preaching to the choir. This is the Bay Area. We are a multicultural people here. And certainly we see that here. And I realize going across the country to different places is different. I remember um, J.D., our associate, if you didn't know J.D., he was our associate for a number of years. He's now in Vienna, but he's Filipino. And I remember going to Together for the Gospel Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and walking into register, and the lady looks at me, and she says, oh, registration's over here. It was a little old lady. She was sweet. And she said, and international students, they, they're, they're over there. <laughs> he was born in San Francisco, raised here all his life. He's full-blooded American. But you see, it's just, it's just it's context. It's, it's all, and so we have, we have to learn to be to adjust and, and to be gracious with people that may not understand all those things. And you actually get to interact with people. Someone is different that moves into your community that's near you. Why not just invite them over? Why not go and talk with them? Why not realize that they're people just like you, working jobs, trying to raise a family, trying to, trying to make it work? Why? We're in the United States of America, for crying out loud. Everyone wants to be here, although everyone, you, know, you have the burning of the flag and all that kind of stuff. People want to be here. Why? Because there's opportunity. That's probably one of the reasons why someone of your descendants decided to come here. Just think it through. Or my property is the most important thing, and I don't care what you say. I'm going to... See, this is a heart issue. That's the first thing. Still love me, right? So far. All right. The next one is this. How are we to live our lives then in light of the tension of living life in a foreign land? And you know what? I think we can come away and you know, oh, do this and do this, do this. I, I think what, one of the things we need to do is we need to chill out. Right? That's the American version of the British statement that says, what? Keep calm and carry on. You've seen it probably all over the place, right? There's a sense in which we need to keep calm, not, not to panic. Don't give up the pursuit of walking with God. Don't give up. Because of this tension, we love the blessing of God, but we recognize that the, the, the bitterness of life comes at times in various ways. Don't let it throw you off course. God's promises have not failed, and he promises to be faithful to you. So keep your eyes fixed on the prize and bring glory to God so that he will be known. But in practical terms, to keep calm and carry on, in the context that I'm using, it simply means this. If you're a young person, go to school and work hard. And then get a job and be an excellent employee. And then get married, have children, be a good and friendly neighbor, drive safely, tip well, make sure you're living life fully engaged in the body of Christ, serve the Lord, be a faithful citizen. Don't panic. Keep calm. Carry on. Why? Because the promises and blessing of God are invincible. And he is at work through both blessing and bitterness. And friends, for Israel, the bitterness is only going to get worse. 
And yet it's the means by which God raises up a deliverer. Lord, help us today. As we, we think about the context that you've called us to, sometimes we might think to ourselves, oh, it wouldn't have been better to live at certain times in the history of the world or in our country. Or we want to change things. But Lord, you haven't called us to those utopian dreams. You've called us to live our lives now, here, Castor Valley, East Bay area, with all of its warts, with all of its difficulties. You've called us, Lord, to be image bearers so that you can be glorified and other people can, be, can, can know you. You've called us, Lord, to enjoy the blessing of what it means to be a follower of God, but also to endure the bitterness of life. And Lord, may we not be deceived into thinking that that our Christian walk is always going to be just smooth sailing. Well, Lord, help us to understand that the bitterness of life is all part of the process that you allow us to go through because you are working on us, you're growing us, you're, you're conforming us, Lord, to what you want us to be. So, Lord, help us to be people who love you, who are respectful to others, who embrace others, who exercise hospitality, but are just persevering in practical ways, living our lives, seeking to glorify you. Lord, it's, it's simple, and yet you call us to live simple lives for your glory. You want to be at the heart. You want to be at the center. Lord, may we pursue that as our goal, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.